This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Most of us have gotten into the habit of checking out the ingredient labels on our foods or skin products. But what about our clothing? If you flip that little tag on the back of your collar, you won't see much information except for maybe where the garment is made or if it's cotton or something else. But nothing about the chemicals used to keep that fabric vibrant, waterproof, or wrinkle-free. Well, our guest today, journalist Alden Wicker, began investigating why a few years ago, after some flight attendants started having awful reactions like painful skin rashes, inflammatory diseases, and even trouble breathing after wearing their uniforms. Wicker's investigation led her to the unregulated use of potentially harmful chemicals in everyday clothing, and she's written a book about it titled To Die For, spelled D-Y-E, how toxic fashion is making us sick and how we can fight back. Alden Wicker is an independent journalist and founder and editor-in-chief of EcoCult, a website that tracks the world of fast and sustainable fashion. She's published investigative pieces for The New York Times, Vogue, and Wired. Alden Wicker, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to 2018. Designer Zach Posen has just designed a new uniform for Delta flight attendants. They're sleek, they're very retro, but almost immediately some attendants started getting sick. What were they experiencing? Some of the reactions they were having were really horrendous. So it usually started with things like rashes and breathing problems, uh, swollen eyes, brain frog, and then it would start progressing to more serious effects like losing their hair. Some of them had their bathtubs or their bras or even their pearl earrings stained with this special purple dye. So it it got worse as it went along. But a lot of them, it took them many, many months to make that connection. Right. I, I was thinking, how did they know that it was the uniforms making them sick? Well, it was pretty clear that something had changed after the introduction of the uniforms, they started getting sick. And then, you know, these flight attendants, they spend a lot of time together in the galleys at the back of the planes or in crash pads in these cities. And they would talk to each other and say, oh, you know, my my period's gotten pretty wacky. Oh, well, my hair is falling out. Some of the airline attendants would tell me that they would start getting these reactions. And then the other airline attendants would be like, have you thought about the uniforms? But, you know, these airlines tended to say, oh, no, it, it's it's not that. We've had the uniforms tested. We're not going to share the exact results with you, but we're confident that they're safe and whatever is in them is not causing these reactions. So I was told recently by a Delta flight attendant on a, a flight that I was on that it really took her a long time to make that connection because she believed the company. And then when she finally got a lookalike uniform uh, that she just bought off the rack at a store, her breathing problems went away. What was in the clothing? So all sorts of things. There were the the dispersed dyes, which are used to dye specifically polyester clothing. And a lot of these new uniforms, as they were switched out, not only at Delta, but three other major airlines were being switched from these more traditional wool suiting to synthetic blends. And so they would have to add dispersed dyes, which are known skin sensitizers. 
And then they would also have to add fire retardant chemistry because wool is naturally fire retardant, but polyester is not. It'll go up in flames if you hold it too close to a, a flame for a while. And then they also had uh, easy care technology. So they had stain repellency, which is almost always provided by perfluorinated chemistry, PFAS. And that's those are known toxic chemicals. They're called forever chemicals because they're so persistent and they've been linked to you know, reproductive toxicity, um, uh, thyroid issues, um, birth defects, all sorts of things. And then also uh, anti-wrinkle finishes, anti-fungal finishes, basically anything they could do to make these uniforms so resistant to any sort of wear and tear that they would hardly even need to wash them. So those anti wrinkle finishes and the finishes to prevent mildew and mold and things like that. We're talking about formaldehyde and Teflon were used as chemical finishing as well, right? Yes. So Teflon is the brand name for water and stain repellent finishes. And that's PFAS, which um, you might know has been in the news lately because it's been found in the water of half of all Americans. And Part of the reason why it's in the water of so many Americans is because there are still manufacturers in the United States of textiles for clothing, performance clothing, uniforms, and furniture that uh, use this stain repellent chemistry, and then they put it in the water, and there's nothing illegal about that. Okay, so when Delta was asked at the time about the sick flight attendants, they said that of their 64,000 workers, only about 1% of them experienced these kind of symptoms. You know, with those percentages, it's kind of easy to brush it off and say, well, maybe it's just a few folks who are sensitive, who have sensitive skin. But you asked yourself whether these cases were isolated to the airline industry or if basically the flight attendants were early detectors of a more widespread phenomenon. And what did you find? Well, the first thing I found is that uh, in order to defend themselves, a lot of these uniform makers would say, well, this is the same type of chemistry that you can find on any normal apparel, as if that's supposed to make the attendants feel better. But it's true. Uh, Almost all of this chemistry you can find on anything that you and I can buy in the store. The difference is that these flight attendants were able to make that connection because there was a very clear before and after. They wear these uniforms for 12 hours or more than that if they're doing these long overnight flights. They sleep in them sometimes, and they can talk to each other and and make those connections. If you or I had several toxic pieces of clothing in our wardrobe, how do we know what's causing our rash? A rash can show up and stay for a week after contact once. We have dozens of different things that we wear every week, and it can be really hard for you or I to make that connection. But there are a lot of clues that something is going wrong in the health of average Americans and especially women. I want to go back a little bit to talk a little more about the use of formaldehyde, also metal and lead, Why would these chemicals be in our clothing? There's a lot of different reasons why these chemicals would be in our clothing. Sometimes they're deliberately used in finishes to give textiles performance uh, performance qualities. So formaldehyde is a a base ingredient for a lot of these anti-wrinkle finishes. Um, lead, and when you say anti-wrinkle, you mean wrinkle-free. So if we buy a pair of pants or a skirt and we don't have to iron it, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And 
some of these, you know, lead has been added traditionally to dyes to make them brighter. And um, other things are added purposely throughout the manufacturing process. So to process, to create some of these synthetic fibers like polyester or especially PVC or polyurethane, to uh, dye them, to finish them, to um, – and some of these things are used uh, like – Pesticides or antifungals are used in the warehouses or in the ships uh, so that they contaminate the clothing uh, kind of by accident as they're being shipped over to us. I do want to ask, is higher-end clothing better or safer than cheap clothes, or or is it more complicated than that? Well, just this morning I was looking at uh, some of the underlying data behind Fashion Revolution's Transparency Index, which just came out last week. And they're a watchdog group. Yes, they're a watchdog group uh, founded after the Rana Plaza factory collapse in 2013, which killed over 1,100 workers. And so they have this index that ranks fashion brands not according to sustainability or ethics, but just how much they're sharing about what they're doing. And some of the things they're looking at is whether or not brands are engaging in good practices around safe chemistry. So I was looking at all of these different brands, the ones that are doing a lot, the ones that are doing absolutely nothing, and there weren't a lot of luxury fashion brands that weren't doing nothing, but there were a few. And there are also fast fashion brands that are doing a lot. So there's no hard and fast rule that the more you pay for fashion, the safer it's going to be. Okay, so you talked to several people who believe their lives were basically turned upside down from their clothing. Were you surprised by what you found or did you already have some inkling as a journalist covering the fashion industry? It was completely shocking and surprising to me. When I first heard about the Delta Airline flight attendants, I had been writing about fashion for almost a decade and I was one of these people that would look at the ingredient list on beauty products I wrote a lot about garment workers and the effects that pollution has on their communities where they create fashion, but I had never heard anything about fashion being so toxic that it could cause problems to the end consumer or the end wearer. But when I looked into it more, it was it, it was everywhere. It was the sort of thing where once you see it, you can't unsee it. So once I started looking into it and I saw the kind of reactions that the flight attendants were having, I started looking around for other people who weren't wearing uniforms to see what the reactions they were having. And I talked to all sorts of people. I talked to a mother whose uh, toddler refused to get dressed in, dressed in the morning and had such severe eczema that he developed sores uh, behind his elbows and knees. And the only thing that made it better was her buying non-toxic certified fabric offline and creating his own uh, underwear for him to wear. I talked to a fashion worker in New York who oversaw production for a series of brands, and her health began to spiral downward after she identified that she was allergic to several substances used in fashion. But, of course, she couldn't avoid it because uh, because she works in fashion, but also because she has to wear clothing to live. Right. And then I talked to a garment worker in India who had terrible cauliflower rashes on her arms and legs because she was working in a garment factory sewing synthetic clothing for the domestic market. You know, part of the challenge, I'm guessing, for 
for anyone who's experiencing an adverse reaction to a piece of clothing is that it might be hard to pinpoint what might be causing their distress. So they might know it. You know, I mean, you, you wear a, a piece of clothing and you have a rash all of a sudden and you go to the doctor and you say, I suspect this sweater or these pants might have caused this. And the doctor might just say, well, don't wear it anymore. But beyond that, I'm guessing it's probably pretty hard to to get very far. You talk about this mother who ended up making her own clothes for her for her child. Well, I mean... I would be surprised if many people are going to their doctor and saying, I know it's my clothes because a lot of people I talked to tried everything else before they came to that conclusion because this is just not something that people are talking about. I spoke to a uh, – this is recently. I spoke to someone who used to work at a mass market store folding T-shirts all day. And she said she developed these rashes all over her hands. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, what detergent are you using? What soaps are you using? What lotions are you using? They never talked about her job. They never brought up clothing or her job. No. And I spoke to a lot of people, um, you know, some of these flight attendants who they would say, look, I know it's the, the uniforms. And the doctors would say, well, there's no evidence of that. So here's some steroid cream and uh, good luck. For the book, how were you able to assess what reactions a person might be experiencing is due to their clothing versus outside factors like the environment? Well, unfortunately, in the United States, it can be really hard to pinpoint that it's coming from fashion. We have a lot of uh, frontline communities that live near factories, that live near highways, that might live in homes that still have lead exposure. And so it was pretty difficult for me to find people who could say, I know this is from my fashion because, you know, especially in uh, communities of color, there's a lot of other things that might be causing this. And uh, so to find people, I had to find people that have control over their environment, have tried everything else and have access to medical care. Um, Often the, the types of doctors that will address this. They don't take insurance. They only take cash. So it can really be a privilege to get to the point where you can even say, hey, um, this is my clothing, and to be able to try to reduce your exposure. You devote an entire chapter to the possibility that chemicals like BPA and PFAs and phylates are endocrine disruptors, the possibility that they can cause or contribute to reproductive problems for women. You know, we're pretty familiar with the harm of and BPAs in children's products and plastics, but I have never heard of it in clothing. So can you explain this a little bit more? So recently, uh, there were tests of polyester spandex workout gears, things like sports bras, socks, um, T-shirts that showed that they had high levels of BPA. And What we've been told in the past is that we don't need to worry about fashion having hazardous substances because, you know, it's not likely we eat it and we don't know how much is getting onto our skin or getting into our body. So let's not be too hasty here. The thing about endocrine disruptors, though, is that they can do a lot of damage even at very, very, very low amounts. So research shows that an amount the size of a drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool can cross the placenta and cause long-term damage to the fetus. And that's not a lot. And it's definitely what you can get from wearing clothing because, of course, we know now that microfibers can break off our clothing when we wash it and also when we wear it. 
They get into our house dust. We can breathe them in. We can also breathe in any volatile organic compounds that are off-gassing or breathing out into the air around us. So we're definitely ingesting high amounts of these chemicals or high enough amounts to do damage. Um, and, you know, it's not just about our reproductive system. Our endocrine system, our hormones, they regulate all the important systems of our body, our energy levels, our, our brain, um, you know, our weight, uh, our skin appearance. I mean, as, as anybody with thyroid disease can tell you, it's your quality of life can be severely impacted when your endocrine system isn't functioning properly. As part of your reporting, you actually did your own testing of several pieces from different brands. You actually had some challenges in this. What did you find? Well, the first thing I found is that this it's way too expensive to get your clothing tested. A lot of these commercial labs will not let normal people who are not brands get their things tested. Even if you can come up with the well, I spent ten thousand, almost ten thousand dollars, getting five things tested for a limited number of substances. But you originally had planned to test dozens of pieces of clothing, right? I did, and then when I was working with the lab representative, he sent me back the original bill, and it was seventeen thousand dollars. And I was like, I paid seven hundred dollars for all of these things together. And I've been asked by people, okay, well, so. How do I get my things tested? I think I'm having a reaction. And I say, look, unless you're made of money, like this, it might not even get you to where you want to go. Because the thing about our current testing paradigm is that you have to know what you're looking for. And these tests have to test for each chemical individually. And each test can cost over $1,000. So when you know that there are at least 3,000 different chemicals used to create and manufacture fashion, there's just no way you're going to catch everything that's in there. And so you could pay a lot for tests and still miss the thing that is causing these reactions. And I think that's part of what made it so difficult for these flight attendants, and other consumers who have tried to sue fashion brands to hold them accountable for the reactions that they were causing because these brands can avoid culpability by saying, well, just tell us the chemical that is causing all of your reactions. And that's an impossible task. You know, the other thing I was thinking about is just how we think about fabric in general. Um, I think we've been conditioned to think of, you know, polyester and some of the other type of synthetic fabrics is maybe like less desirable, maybe if we were thinking about skin conditions and um, its impacts on us, we think about it in those terms, or how cotton might be better for us. Is that the case, or are, are these chemicals also used in, um, in cotton fabrics? Synthetic fabrics do tend to be riskier when it comes to some of these hazardous chemicals or some of these finishes that can cause reactions. But Cotton and other natural fibers can also be coated in performance chemicals or be contaminated with some of these pesticides, fungicides, or just other contaminants that can be in the chemical substances themselves that are used in the factories. So it's not a hard and fast rule, no. But I do recommend, and uh, this is both from my research and the lived experiences of people who have 
sensitive skin or chronic illness that people do try to wear natural fibers whenever possible as one way to decrease their exposure. Our guest today is journalist and author Alden Wicker. Her new book is called To Die For, How Toxic Fashion is Making Us Sick and How We Can Fight Back. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and today we're talking to journalist and author Alden Wicker. Her new book is called To Die For. Let's talk about Shein for a minute. It's one of the most popular brands in the U.S., and they're facing all sorts of legal troubles, copyright infringement, accusations of forced labor for a while now, and they've been known as one of the worst offenders of having concerning levels of chemicals in their clothing. What can you tell us about their use of toxic chemicals? There have been tests of Shein that have shown, in, especially in their children's products, that they have high levels of lead, high levels of phthalates, at up to 19 times California's safe limit for some of these substances. And they can get away with a lot, a lot more than some of the larger legacy brands. What they do is they often ship their products straight from China or from Canada and Mexico. And because a lot of their shipments are under $800, way, way under $800, according to U.S. law, the Customs and Border Protection They don't have to check these packages for safety, and they also don't even apply tariffs to them like they would to larger shipments. So that's a huge loophole for these ultra-fast fashion brands to be able to out-compete fashion brands that create a higher quality or safer product and also are more environmentally friendly. You know, I heard a conversation you had um, about the protests against Nike back in the 90s over the use of sweatshops, and how public outrage really didn't hurt the bottom line for the company. And I was thinking about a company like Shein or maybe any other company that we may learn um, has bad business practices or uses uh, toxic chemicals. Really, it, it will take more than public outrage is kind of what you're saying in your book. I have not seen a good example of public education or outrage sending the fashion industry in the correct direction. I think a lot of consumers, most consumers are aware that there are terrible things happening in our supply chain. And one of the only reasons that Nike, for example, started overhauling its supply chain to get rid of uh, child labor was because its employees started failing the cocktail party test, which is Can you walk into a cocktail party, tell people what you do, and not have them cringe a little bit? And 
especially for a company like Xi'an, which is based in China, that's definitely not going to happen. And that's actually one of the reasons why I chose to write about this particular subject in my book. I had been offered the opportunity to write a pretty basic book about how to shop more sustainably, and that's been done and done well before. But I was starting to lose faith that just telling people about the atrocities that happen in our supply chain would convince them to shop better for a few reasons. One is that it's really hard when you have so many competing priorities to think about a garment worker who will never meet or never see across the other side of the world and keep her in mind when you're shopping. The other thing is that consumers with good reason don't believe or don't know that if they pay $5 more, that $5 is going to make it to that garment worker or to that cotton farmer. So when I was deciding what I wanted to write about, I realized that the maybe the only and best way to get people to really care about what happens across the ocean is to show how it affects them. Alden, I want to get into regulation. You know, the closest thing we've gotten, it's not quite regulation, but it is an eye on the issue, is um, some states like California, which has Prop 65, which basically provides warning labels. And some of the warnings are like, this product contains a chemical known to the state of California to cause cancer. I happen to live in California, and I appreciate this, but sometimes it really is scary because you basically see the warning everywhere on everything, and there's not the next step to take except for maybe not to purchase the product. It's true. It does seem really scary because it can be on so many different products, especially if they're plastic or contain any synthetic substances. But a lot of the work that 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 Prop 65 has done has been underneath the surface. So the reason why we know that so many fashion products have been found to have things like BPA, which is a hormone-disrupting chemical, or phthalates, or lead, or cadmium, is because Prop 65 has made it possible for advocacy groups to buy products that are unlabeled, test them, and then uh, sue companies that don't remediate that. So it doesn't say that you can't have those banned chemicals in clothing. It just says if you do, you have to label them. And a lot of fashion brands do not want to put that label on their products. So there have been agreements where fashion brands have reduced cadmium, phthalates, and lead out of their products. And we're going to start seeing that with BPA as well. You're also making the case for the passage of bills like the Fashion Act. What is the Fashion Act and what would it do? The Fashion Act is a proposed law in New York City that would require fashion brands to know uh, and list their suppliers down to at least, I think, tier one for sure, and uh, share the environmental impact of the manufacturing that goes into their supply chain. Right now, a lot of fashion brands say, well, we only have control over, you know, our headquarters and our stores. But the decisions that fashion brands make uh, around sourcing, around how much they'll pay, uh, have real effects on the environmental impact of their fashion. So that would get us a pretty good long way toward reducing the negative environmental impact. And also it would help us with toxic fashion chemistry because a fashion brand that does not know who is dyeing the textiles going into their clothing is a fashion brand that probably has contamination and deliberately applied toxic chemicals on their fashion. 
What is the appetite currently for the passage of something like the Fashion Act? I think the fashion industry, or I know the fashion industry, was very much caught off guard by the introduction of this legislation. They don't really have a lot of lobbyists right now. So um, there hasn't been a ton of pushback, but also there hasn't been many brands that have wanted to get on board either, even the ones that tout their sustainability. Because what the Fashion Act asked them to do is rather expensive, um, will require hiring people to manage the process, as these things do. But, you know, there are some fashion brands, uh, surprisingly, like H&M, that have come out publicly, especially in the European Union and in California, as saying that the current paradigm is not enough, that they want to know more about what chemicals, substances are in the manufacturing of their products and are asking for something to be done. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Alden Wicker, fashion sustainability journalist and author of the new book, To Die For, how toxic fashion is making us sick and how we can fight back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Anne-Marie Baldonado from Fresh Air. And if you're a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you already heard our special extended interview between Terry Gross and our new Fresh Air co-host, Tanya Mosley. There is a sense that If you're talking to me about these very personal subjects and you want me to excavate, I need to know you have skin in the game. How are you letting me know that you're also coming to the table just as vulnerable? Fresh Air Plus supporters get access to special bonus episodes like this, archival deep dives, behind-the-scene looks, and more. Why don't you give it a try? Go to plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air, and today we're talking to Alden Wicker, fashion journalist and author of To Die For, How Toxic Fashion is Making Us Sick and How We Can Fight Back. Alden Wicker is an independent journalist and founder and editor-in-chief of EcoCult, a website that tracks the world of fast fashion and sustainable fashion. 
Alden, one of the things you do in this book is to give folks some practical tips on what they can do to be better consumers and protect themselves from these potentially toxic chemicals in our clothing. So let's go through a few of them. First, avoid cheap knockoff or unknown brands. And you know what? This one seems pretty obvious to me, but then I thought about how much I got into buying from these random shops off of Instagram during the pandemic. You say that that is a no-no. It's absolutely a no-no. Those fashion brands, I mean, I think it's a stretch to call them a fashion brand because you might have noticed they have these sort of gibberish names that don't really make sense. They do. (laughs) But it's always so cute, so amazing photography. I know it's not an excuse, but yes, continue. Well, I would ask you, did the product that showed up match the photo that you you bought from? It was 50-50. Yeah, not always. Yep. Yeah. So these brands, I mean, they are created by factory owners so that they can sell straight to the consumer. And nobody is checking those packages as they move from straight from the factory to your front door. If you buy from a brand that has a reputation that it cares about, from a retailer that can be held legally accountable in the state of California, somebody is checking once or twice at least to make sure that these products are safe and don't have restricted hazardous substances on them. But those fashion brands, they don't care about their reputation. If you've ever tried to return something, you know that they just impossible. Impossible. Yep. Okay. Another thing is to look for third-party labels. Can you explain what you mean by that? There are some labels that govern different parts of the supply chain and toxicity. So Blue Sign is one. They uh, work with partner with factories and suppliers to make sure that they're using safe chemistry and using it safely for workers. There's also Okotex. That's O E K O T E X, Okotex. And that one is a certification that's for consumers to know that the product's been tested for over 300 substances and nothing has been found to be over their limit. And then there's GOTS Organic, and that label means that the product moved through a series of factories that are using safe chemistry according to organic principles. And you can find these just in the label of your clothing. Yeah, exactly. Or on the product page or the about or sustainability page on a retailer's website. Okay, so... Another one is to avoid performance materials like spandex and workout gear. If it promises to be anti-odor, wrinkle-free, easy care, stain-resistant, water-resistant, all of those things are usually achieved with synthetic finishes that are known to be toxic. Um, I think a lot of people feel disappointed when I tell them that they shouldn't be buying performance products because they're think, oh, but they make my life so easy. But a lot of times they don't even really work as well as advertised. There was some research that came out earlier this year showing that PFAS doesn't even really provide that good of stain repellency. You know what I thought about when I read to avoid performance materials is just how many of us live in our workout gear, especially now. Um, And how I've actually had friends who had rashes from their spandex or workout gear But they always attribute it to maybe wearing it too long because they're working out and the sweat is then in between the clothing and their skin. It just makes you rethink, 
your relationship with your clothing and maybe some of the experiences that you've had with them over time? This is a conversation I've had over and over and over again over the past few years where people say, I've never heard about this before. And then I start to tell them about some things and they go, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. I do get a rash when I wear things like this. Or I can't really – my mom says she can't really tolerate polyester. I – I'm – I have re- pretty robust health, but I did notice that I got the worst at the risk of TMI. I got the worst breakout on my butt after I wore black uh, workout bike shorts to a hot yoga class, and I had taken them off right away. So I now try to wear you know ninety five plus percent cotton uh, workout clothing so that that doesn't happen, and also because it itches less. Okay. Another one is avoid super-saturated, ultra-bright, or neon colors. But Alden, the, the 90s are back. I know. I, you know, when I emerged from the pandemic and suddenly my neighborhood seemed to be 10 years long, younger, I was looking around and I was like, oh, my God, so much synthetic mesh, mm-hmm. so many neon colors, so many clear plastics. Um, yeah, I mean – I hate to tell people that they can't express themselves fully with their fashion. What I would say is that, yeah, these types of neon colors are very, very risky. If you're in perfect health and this makes you happy, I mean, go at your own risk. But I think if you're having reactions, if you have skin reactions, if you have a chronic illness, if you're recovering from cancer and you're trying to get endocrine disruptors out of your environment, um, I would go for light colors, earthy colors, um, and avoid those super saturated neon uh, black and blue colors. Okay, so going back to the the airline workers, there were several lawsuits that were filed, Delta being the um, most recent one. What ended up happening? None of the lawsuits that were the three lawsuits that were filed related to the three major airlines have made it through to a class action lawsuit. The first one was against Twin Hill, the maker of Alaska Airlines uniforms. It was thrown out for lack of evidence. Unfortunately, there was a study that came out later after this showing that a lot of the symptoms of the airline attendants like Breathing issues, rashes, multiple chemical sensitivity had more or less doubled, but by then it was too late. American Airlines, that lawsuit is still ongoing. I have not heard any updates yet on that. And the Delta lawsuit failed to qualify for class action. So again, a lot of these brands have avoided culpability by saying, well, There was nothing in there by itself that was at high enough levels to cause all of these different reactions. And that is a really clever way to avoid culpability because what it doesn't include is the fact that chemicals can mix together and create different chemicals or have synergistic effects where they can help other chemicals have even more damaging effects on our bodies. And these fashion products, the uniforms especially, but even normal fashion products can have dozens of different substances layered on top of each other. So they're definitely mixing. And a lot of them 
do the same type of damage to the same organs, and so they're working together. And together, they might be over the limit. But right now, we have these textile limits that, in many cases, are based on really shoddy research, best guesses. And in the United States, they're pretty much voluntary. So, even if one of them shown to be over these sort of arbitrary limits that are voluntarily taken up by some brands, there's no legal reason they need to follow that limit. You mentioned how sometimes fashion brands don't even know uh, full details of the chemicals that are that are um, in the finishes that are in their clothing. What did you hear from manufacturers or fashion brands when you were researching this book? Well, I didn't hear much from fashion brands because they didn't really want to talk to me about this. <laughs> But from manufacturers, when I was in India, I was talking to some garment workers and. They had a son there who is a merchandiser for one of these factories that produces for large American brands, which I will not name here. But he said, "Oh yeah, so we are asked by these brands to have our products tested by third-party service and then send them the certificate. But but we can change it if it comes up positive for hazardous substances, as we long as they're not. It? We can change it. Yeah, I mean." Look, there's a lot of corruption in the fashion industry, and it's you know it's not hard to ask somebody to fake a certificate. Alden Wicker, thank you so much for this conversation. Very enlightening. Thank you so much. This has been great. Alden Wicker is a journalist and author of To Die For: How Toxic Fashion Is Making Us Sick and How We Can Fight Back. Coming up, jazz critic Kevin Whitehead reviews an unearthed 1974 session of tenor saxophonist Clifford Jordan. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how cash can be part of a balanced savings strategy for investors. Oftentimes, people think of their cash as the money they're using. But when there's a high rate environment, your cash can also be a form of savings. So savings can sit in your cash account, and savings can sit in an investing account. And on average, and over time, investments go up. But in a high interest rate environment, you can get a more predictable return in a high yield savings account. And so investors can choose both strategies: an investment strategy as well as a cash strategy. To both protect your principal because cash doesn't go down the way markets can, but also to earn a high yield. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk; performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This is Fresh Air. Tenor saxophonist Clifford Jordan came up in Chicago and toured in the '60s with greats like Charles Mingus, Max Roach, and Randy Weston. Jordan's own albums include a tribute to folk bluesman Lead Belly, a newly unearthed 1974 session by Jordan, which mixes singers and an actor with a small ensemble, is out now. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says it's a striking one of a kind.
Witch Doctors chant, Eba Licky Doo, from Clifford Jordan's album, Drink Plenty Water. He didn't have to look far for singers, drafting his teenage daughter Donna, his wife's sister Denise Williams, and her pal Kathy O'Boyle into an instant girl group. They gave his songs the right street corner cred. Griffin on trombone. Clifford Jordan was recording for the independent black musicians label Strata East in 1974 when Drink Plenty Water was made. It may have gone unreleased because that year Jordan and company made a commercially unsuccessful Strata East LP with some of the same front stoop feel, led by singer Muriel Winston, who also appears here. Still, Jordan's tunes are better. Even the dead simple rondo, My Papa's Coming Home. Whether Dad's returning from a business trip, tour of duty, or other enforced separation, Clifford Jordan's solo catches the celebratory mood. Jordan had previously recorded instrumental versions of a couple of these tunes and arrangements aimed at attracting a wider audience. But Drink Plenty Water sounds designed for his core African-American constituency. There are a couple of monologues by actor David L. Smurl, later known as Sesame Street shopkeeper Mr. Hanford. On the track Drink Plenty Water and Walk Slow, Smurl plays a jailhouse sage who's seen it all, sizing up and wising up a new cellmate. I hear tell you played that horn once well, but after that five-year layoff, boy, you sound like hell. You were so drug a tear came your eye, and you put that horn back in the case and heaved aside. You was about to have a nervous breakdown if Splatton Doobie and Teddy Smith hadn't told you how good you sound. And another thing that dried that tear in your eye was when they told you that the dinner bell had rung and that the desire for dinner that night was cherry pie. Boy, you lucky that you were snatched out of the alley in the valley on 50th Street and stood up in this prison on your own two feet. That jostle of words and music recalls Charles Mingus's beatnik jazz and poetry mashups, but David Smurl's 1974 streetwise rhymed couplets also look ahead a few short years to hip-hop. It's a reminder of the deep roots of rap in African-American oral literature, even if rappers do it faster. 
you can hear hip-hop subject matter coming on Smurl's Tall Story Talking Blues. So I hung around and I played the clown until the army took me in. And I spent two years in a Texas town where they didn't like the color of my skin. Well, now the army didn't like me, I didn't like them. We was glad when we let each other go. Another second-hand car and some cowboy boots, and I headed into Mexico. Well, I smoked a lot of grass, and I ran a lot of guns. You know, I slept on the ground now and then. Yeah, I lived in the mountains with the bandits for a while till the federal troops came in. Fine players in Clifford Jordan's extended band include trumpeter Bill Hardman, pianist Stanley Cowell, drummer Billy Higgins, and on bass, either Sam Jones or Bill Lee, who also wrote some subtle background charts for the band and who recently passed away. The music for that talking blues was improvised, and the album ends with that same blues minus the vocal, the better to hear the band's loose goosing. Even so, the flavor of black speech remains. Jordan's one-time boss, Randy Weston, said, I like the music to sound like the way black people talk. Clifford had that sound, that voice. Clifford Jordan's voice comes through clearly in the words and the music on the oddball rediscovery, Drink Plenty Water. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. He reviewed the newly released recording by tenor saxophonist Clifford Jordan titled Drink Plenty Water. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, is the movie and TV industry collapsing or just reshaping itself to suit the relatively new world of the internet and streaming? We'll talk with Bloomberg reporter Lucas Shaw about what we, the viewers, can expect in the future, especially now that writers and actors are on strike. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality, join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.